to do to start off our conversation is go back to a email that I sent you guys. I've got it here on the 3rd of March, 2022. And what we might do to get the conversation going is just, you know, uh, mill over a couple of the things that I said, and it was starting around the UK, uh, the Ukraine war. So no doubt you're staying up to date with the latest actions in Ukraine. I wanted to reach out to you guys. So maybe you can pass on to other people the true weight of what may be going on. You'll all at least be up to speed on the history. So explaining the implications of the invasion will make more sense. Um, apart from the thousands of people who have already died in the conflict, um, which would be a whole lot more by now, a couple of the other claims that I made was 40 years of globalization are dead, Cheap commodities are dead. The US dollar as a reserve currency of the world is dead. And Pax Americana is also dead. So what we might do is go around starting with Mark. Mark, do you think those sort of claims that I made over a year ago, we're speaking in March now, came true? Or did some of them come true? Or were some of them off the mark? What do you think? Yeah, well, it's... um like all good predictions, some of them uh, don't come to fruition quite well. But um, I guess a lot of people were, and myself included, were quite uh, wrong about how well Ukraine would um, hold off the Russians, but also um, the world's response to the war as well. And you can also say that um, the Western, Western countries, uh, everyone presumed that they would lose faith in the war and um, I guess that's what Russia was banking on. Um, but I kind of feel like the Russian, uh, sorry, not the Russian, the United States dollar has actually got gotten stronger over the period just because of all the um, uncertainty in the world. And it's the one one thing that the whole world has still got um, quite a high amount of faith in. Um, and yeah, I just believe the uh, Ukraine has done a good job and they've um, showing the world what um, resilience and um, persistence and um, patriotism can do to your country. Righto. Let's throw over to Tom. Tom, what do you think of the, the email or the claims from the email? Uh, yeah, I definitely think that commodity prices have uh, definitely increased uh, since the war in Ukraine. Um I definitely thought it was going to be more of a supply sort of constrained situation, but I think a lot of the big oil producers and gas producers have actually made a lot of money out of the out of the price increases over the past year at least. Um, as far as the US dollar, it still seems to be holding strong, um, much to the detriment of uh, European the European Union and uh, the UK as well. Uh, just as far as the US hiking their rates has really crushed um, Europe uh, economically. Um, but we may be seeing some of that uh, US dollar starting to fall over the next uh, next year or so with the current um, atmosphere going on with banking in the US and internationally. Yeah, absolutely. Was there, was there anything else? What about the... Um apart from the economic side, the Pax Americana ending. So the solo, only one superpower, do you see that maybe that is the case or is it pretty much the status quo? Like things haven't really changed. Like Russia's still isolated, hasn't got friends, that sort of stuff. Uh, yeah, I think Russia's still pretty isolated other than their sort of... Um friendship with China based more or less on the fact that they're both sort of um, isolated. Um, otherwise, I think the US is still holding a lot of power um, and with a lot of the uh, military spending going on around the world, not just in Europe with their um, 
need to replace all the old surplus weapons that they've um they've had for years that they're now using to support ukraine but also like us in australia with the AUKUS deal for the submarines i think the us has got a lot of um economic benefits as far as their military um superiority and control on the world stage i think they're going to see a lot of benefits from that um in their in their global standing and position yeah they did a good job of getting rid of all their old stuff that's for sure (laughs) that's one of the things that when you see the headlines of you know us is donating billions and billions of dollars that a lot of it is i heard somebody talking about the other day that a lot of it is their army surplus which would have cost more for the us to dispose of so in fact they're in some roundabout way they're saving money by giving it away because there is also this bit of an implication that there is still going to be some sort of payback at the end luke what do you think what did you think about the email well the boys have sort of hit on a lot of the points there but as far as you're saying to you know take it all very seriously and to tell people that this is a, a big event i think that like as far as all that's concerned it isn't really covered as much as it probably should be at the moment sort of thing like it is a really big event and as far as i'm concerned like when you turn on the news and stuff there isn't a lot of updates as to what's going on over there and that sort of thing and i'd really like to see more of like people taking it seriously like i haven't heard anyone really talking about it since it started but just sort of dropped off yeah um maybe we could all go around and just share what the initial reaction was to it because i'd totally agree with you luke that it almost went from zero to a hundred and then it's just been war fatigue ever since then of just like slowly dropping off and off and off. And like, I'll start off by saying that I was in the camp of that. You could see the, and this is over a year ago now, you could see that Putin along with Belarus had all these troops stationed around Ukraine. There were a lot of meetings going on, but as I was going in and say, talking to my year 11 class and and whatnot and uh, and them asking well what do you think is going to happen my thoughts was it just doesn't make any sense like (laughs) what what do you have the gain from like let's say you do go to kiev and you or kiev and you take over kiev then you've still got to try to occupy a nation of 40 million like aggressive people that historically absolutely hate your guts so then you're going to be stuck in like a quagmire. So from my point of view, it was Putin is just, is he that dumb? Or like, what's the long-term plan here? Um, and then when it did happen, just as shocked as everybody else, then you go through the ebbs and flows of, oh, this is going to be a whitewash, that Ukraine's going to get run over. I remember being at school, kids being, like kids are literally crying in class because of the media coverage of like this is what is this is this world war three and having to do like whole elective history lessons like imagine standing at the front of a class of like 30 kids five of them or so are crying because they don't know what's going on but they're just getting plastered with stuff all over the news and people asking questions and then you having to like calmly explain that you know, the situation that, no, this isn't as bad as everybody's making it out to be, that it, you can't really call it a world war at this stage. And just from that fever high, it seemed to have, yeah, it's just gone to obscurity now. Anyway, that's my point. Who would like to do their sort of initial takes and initial thoughts about it? Yeah, I'll jump, I'll jump in there. I was... Um, and go for it. Yeah, a bit like... Um, most people at the start of it, you're seeing uh, Russia building up and um, putting all their forces in Belarus and the Ukrainian border. And you'd be sitting there thinking like, 
oh, it's very foolish. Why would they go in there? I can't really see it happening. Like, um, it's like you were saying, if they're in there and they occupy it, then um, great, you've invaded and taken over the country, but you've also got so many millions of people just um, who are angry and wanting to fight back and get their land back as we've been seeing so far. Um, but yeah, so I'd be sitting there and then um, there was, I do remember this uh, one person saying when everyone else was saying that it wasn't going to be happening, it's just a military exercise or whatever. And he was saying that, oh, this is the same thing that they'd done um, when they annexed Crimea. And that kind of um, made me like step back and think about it. And it's like, oh, well, maybe they are preparing for it and just doing their bluff sort of thing. And then um, when they did invade, it was a bit less of a shock um, to myself personally. Um, but yeah, I was also, um, I guess, affected by the perceived strength of uh, Russia having the biggest land army in like a land battle um, and having all these being like a once great superpower in the Soviet Union that also had all these nuclear weapons and um, all these fighters and tanks and all this Cold War um, military, but also their investment in like hypersonic uh, missiles and next generation fighters and such. And so I was thinking that it was going to be a whitewash. They'd take over uh, Ukraine, um, setting aside all those issues we'd mentioned before that they'd have with Ukraine. Um, but yeah, when the Ukrainians held onto their own and started pushing them back, um, you could definitely see the whole world rooting behind them and um, billions of dollars of uh, military equipment being thrown at them. But then, yeah, kind of settled them into that sort of a, a stalemate, I guess you could say. And they're sitting around, um, no one's really making any gains and um, the world kind of tuned out a bit. But it was back when they um, took back Kharkiv and the Kherson region that um, I kind of got a bit more um, engaged in it and then tried to follow along from there even though it slowed up after that because um, the implications of whatever's going to happen in this war I don't I don't really see a good ending in it and um, even if Ukraine they're so adamant about getting back all of their lands including Crimea um, that's going to be such a difficult task even it took the Nazis so many months with such a larger um, army than the Ukrainians have and so much more equipment to take it back in World War II. So um, I can't really see them taking back Crimea. But even I think Putin has just been quite isolated and his ego has been, um, been driving a lot of these decisions. Like you can see him um, with his fight for the, the head of the Wagner group. Um, he's not sending him any bullets, so it's just... Um, yeah, Russia's kind of taking a lot of hits and not getting anywhere. And um, yeah, that's kind of what I've, um, my initial thoughts on it were. Yeah, ab absolutely. Um, Tom, did you want to go next, mate? Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, so initially, Putin came in with a lot of force um, and really uh, conquered a lot of Ukraine uh, before that sort of um international support came for ukraine and ukraine was able to hold out and um i feel like at this stage that maybe putin wasn't aiming to take the entirety of ukraine he was more just pushing for that control so that he could um sort of grab that donbass region which is sort of um very culturally similar to russia and has a lot of uh, a lot more allegiance to Russia, so I feel like that area is a lot more likely to succumb to Russian occupation um, and join with Russia. Uh, at the same time, I also see that the war sort of is dragging on now. I feel like it's going to be very similar to a lot of the uh, Middle Eastern wars in terms of there could be international support and whatnot, but the war is a lot more controlled by the actual occupants of each country who understand the terrain, understand the environment. You know, the Nazis couldn't handle the Russian winter 
but the Ukrainians probably can at this point, being uh, from a similar uh, a similar area, biome, sort of uh, sort of weather um, environment. But um, so I see this sort of war definitely drawing out, and I think it will depend on how long international support can last as to whether Ukraine ends up um, maintaining, like re recovering its entire area or whether it ends up losing a piece to Russia. And um, at the end of the day, whatever happens, I feel like either side will not recognize um, that, that territory as each other's. Yeah, no, absolutely. That, that A couple of you have said so far that it's it's not going to come to, like, no matter what, there doesn't seem to be a, a good, you know, amicable solution where both of them are going to be happy. Both of them kind of want to go for it all. That it's either, yeah, it's kind of like all or nothing. And there was like an initial point maybe where there could have been some sort of negotiation, but it still would have been one side or the other. But anyway, let's get over to Luke. I don't want to take up too much of the airtime. Luke, what do you what did you think? Initial reactions, thoughts now, that sort of stuff. Very much like Mark. There was sort of that when it first started, I would sort of had that thing where, you know, Ukraine's just gonna get steamrolled. But it is interesting to see them hold out. And it's also kind of interesting to think about, you know, when the when it first started, there were protests by Russian people. So do do the Russian people really want this war? And it was kind of interesting to him talk about what you know Mark's talking about. You know, at this point, it's just Putin's ego, and so it's you know I think motivation has played a big part as far as you know the Ukrainian people are fighting back and they're fighting because it's their land. And as far as like Russian soldiers, do they really want to be there? And I think. It pl motivation plays more of a role than it's given credit a lot of the time. So I think that could play what a big factor in, you know, um, how it all plays out. Yeah, and thinking about to like the like the messaging and, you know, do they really want to do it? I personally think that there was a big tonal shift early on in the conflict where again the initial strike was happening by the russians every pundit was kind of saying that you know this is going to be you know uh, like a one-sided affair putin was probably hoping that if he targeted the major cities his intel was probably saying to him that you know we've paid off who we need to pay off the country is corrupt the government's going to fall over and zelensky is going to turn tail and run I think that all really came unhinged when the West was offering to evacuate Zelensky and make him a leader in exile. And he had that, he had that amazing, like we talk about propaganda, he had that amazing comeback of like, you know, I, I don't need a lift, I need bullets. Like that's just some Rambo shit right there. And I think maybe from that point, the, the West kind of thought okay we've got like a churchill here like we've got a fighter and also our initial i guess estimations that the russian army was you know fearsome and had all these numbers when it turned out that they were just ditching tanks on the side of the road because you know the fan belt was getting broken and they couldn't replace it or they didn't have fuel for it and all that sort of rubbish that was going on and when their paratroopers which were supposed to be the like the creme de la creme the blue berets were flying in and they couldn't take one airport like they were just getting mowed down it almost it kind of revealed russia to be a paper tiger um did you guys have that sort of same implication or same sort of thought too that Zelensky and his ability to control social media and his ability to control the narrative saved Ukraine. Yeah, well, I guess it was definitely a uh, 21st century fight. Um, I guess you could say Russia was stuck, stuck back in the 20th century, but Zelensky, 
um, who were to see that coming being being a comedian and a president turning out to be a uh, Churchill type figure. So um, I was quite quite impressed with his um, resolve there. And like you said, that uh, that quote he gave about um, not needing a list and needing ammo was uh, also something that hit me like, geez, he's, um, Ukraine might have a chance here. Um, but also I reckon the West, West like the US and the uh, Europe and so on, they definitely see it as like this is a um, a credible threat to Russia as um, and something that could um, knock Russia off the world stage and um, have a kind of that adversary off their back and um, I definitely reckon that the US has capitalised on this situation and um, having Zelensky there is one of the um, the better options for. Um, not only Ukraine, but also the West. Yeah. Anybody else got any thoughts? I think Mark summed it up pretty well. Yep. Tom, you agree? Yeah, I agree. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Rightio. Well, if we're thinking about that, and I definitely agree with you, Mark, that the US uh, perhaps maybe doing a Soviet-Afghan sort of war situation with the Mujahideen. It's like, we've got Russia here now and they're in a quagmire. Let's just, let's just go for a death by a thousand cuts. It's just, and we don't need to put our, and it's, we don't need to put our own bodies in there, which is always the hardest thing to convince your population to do. And we've got all this surplus and we can just, feed our surplus into here and feed our support in into that and as long as we control the narrative um then we should be right and it just locks russia in longer and longer and longer yeah definitely must have been must have been reading the art of war to never interrupt your enemy when he's making a mistake so (laughs) yeah that is a very good point on that point do you think that so we, we talked about like the chinese maybe being russia Russia's like only credible ally. Do you think that the Chinese are probably taking this whole episode as a bit of like a bit of a wake up call? Because everyone harps on about Taiwan all the time. It's just like, oh, yep, they're going to invade Taiwan. It's just any moment now. Do you think that perhaps maybe seeing the way that people have reacted or the West has reacted or has maybe dissuade them, maybe decided like, oh, we thought that the West were weak. We thought they would roll over at any sort of sign of physicality. Like they're all woke, but it's kind of like turned out differently. Do you think maybe they've changed their thoughts about any sort of aggression? Yeah, I think the uh, Chinese-Taiwan sort of tensions have sort of been my... uh, I've been looking at the Ukraine or as sort of a um, hint to what's to come with with China and Taiwan. And I think they've definitely noticed the support from the West for Ukraine. Um, and I think recently one of the, a, a Chinese official at least, um, came out and stated that they had no interest in attacking Taiwan. And the tensions there have definitely decreased since the Ukraine war has started and sort of gone on. Um, as well as that, I think there's been a lot more, um, confidence in terms of, uh, especially us, um, the U S investment in Chinese companies and the Chinese economy. Um, and as well as that, uh, Thai, Taiwanese, um, companies and whatnot. And I think that sort of shows that a lot of powerful people within the US and the West are sort of confident that there isn't going to be a breakdown in relations between the West and China, um, like there was early on with a lot of fear that China was going to pull a lot of their companies from um, the US stock market and um, Ukraine, and uh, Taiwan, sorry, was then going to end up invaded and a lot of the companies that derive a lot of wealth from um, Taiwan and manufacturing in Taiwan, um, we're going to lose out there. And so I think China has definitely been watching 
the war and sort of noticed that the the US and the West will not roll over, um, as well as things that have been going on on the side between the US and China with the um, weather balloon, uh, spy balloon, whatever it was. Yeah, that was a bit. That was a bit of a sideshow, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, and then, uh, but it's funny. More recently, with the US drone um, and Russia now, the t- the tables are sort of flipped with US maybe or maybe not doing a bit of a China and um, doing a bit of uh, bit of surveillance, fishing, fishing for you for Russian response. Yeah, with their with their drones flying around the area. I'm not sure whether that was a Russian oversight or mistaken identity or um, accident as to why there was a bit of a, a bit of a hit there because that's definitely going to stir the US up a lot more than Russia sort of needs or wants. Did um did anybody see the video that the Pentagon released? Yeah, yeah, when they were yep. dumping fuel on it. <laughs> Is that what they were doing? I was just yeah. like, man, this. SU, what is it, FU-57? Anyway, this jet was like doing Tokyo Drift. (laughs) Just like ramming into this thing. But that's what it was doing. It was dumping fuel. And wasn't it on like the second pass it actually collided with it or was it still more? Yeah, anyway, you guys might be able to tell me. I think it was just toying around with it a bit. Yeah, like dumping fuel on it. Because you'd never do that. You only do that when you're a bit too heavy and you, you need to land, so... They're definitely intentionally throwing this fuel onto them. Uh, I guess at the back of the engine as well, they're trying to get it to heat up and explode it or um, maybe make a bit of minor damage to um, just toy with the US. But I think, yeah, it was they'd come in for the first attempt and they'd missed a bit and then they got a bit close and they'd hit the uh, propeller or something and damaged it. And I think it was $32 million drone. So <laughs> um, a bit of a... Uh, dent to the wallet for the US, but I think the Russian fighter came out with only like minor damage and made it back. But yeah, definitely a bit of uh, increase in tension there. Yeah, it ended up clipping the propeller of the um, SU-27 drone. But um, oh no, the SU-27 hit the MQ-9 Reaper drone, but it ended up going down out in the sea there. And I think the US was saying that they've spotted um, Russians, Russian ships attempting to um, find it and salvage it for uh, any intelligence or whatever it was carrying, but they seem pretty confident that there's nothing there that is of any value. Do you have any thoughts on any of these flying incidents, Luke? Either the balloon or the or the drone more recently? No, oh, I just watched it and I just thought, you know, this is all a bit bit of a mess around sort of things like. As far as the balloon flying over, like it just seemed a bit strange to me as far as what they could possibly have gained from that. And then, you know, the other incidents have just seems kind of trivial. Yeah. Like the balloon was probably the most yeah, like what is the payoff here and you yeah. know, the Chinese trying to like lie about it that oh it's a weather balloon, but it's like <laughs> half the size <laughs> it's the size of half a football field and carrying like instru- like massive instruments on it and you're operating at 60,000 feet. Um, yeah, and yeah, what were they hoping to do with that? And then this drone incident where, again, you can see on Elon Musk's Twitter, as soon as it happens, the, the Warhawks are out straight away tweeting that, you know, this is it, ready for escalation, escalation. But... Mm-hmm. When even like you just said, Tom, you know, they're going to take a bit of hit to their wallet for $32 million. It's like the US probably doesn't even blink when that happens. Like they'll have a response, but I don't know, maybe do they even see it as like a serious, like do you, would they have thought that there would be any need to escalate whatsoever with no bodies or no humans being involved? Yeah, well... Uh, it's probably not as serious as some other sort of events, but I think the media has definitely been pushing the severity of it with the fact that um, US and Russian military officials had like the first official call for a very long time and it was only hours after that occurred 
So I think they're saying that there's a lot of uh, a lot of military sort of tension between the two. Yeah, a little bit of oh, and speaking of military tension, if we go back to our like studies that we did on the Cold War, the breakdown of the START treaties. That's probably something that um, is far more serious than any of those other sorts of incidents. Like, do you think we're going backwards now, now that Start's been torn up and all these other nuclear non-proliferation treaties are being torn up? Yeah, well, it's, it's definitely, you're looking like it, but, um, I mean, I, I only see that, that drone incident as just, um, just being a fly buzzing around, you know, it's annoying, but, um, it's not enough, um, of a event to, um, enact a response, but yeah, definitely Russia tearing up that treaty is a bit of a concern, but then again, they do have so many thousands of nuclear warheads, like enough to destroy the world anyway. Um, what's more going to do? Is it just going to ignite another arms race? And, um, is it going to be a, a, um, a three pronged cold war starting up between the U S Russia and China? Because I can definitely see, um, China, but not only is U S taking advantage of this, but China would be as well. And they'd start to ramp up their, um, their military and, um, that in turn, um, is in, in a response to the U S ramping up their military and, um, yeah, we might be seeing another cold war and, um, then it just makes you think what, um, poor proxy war is going to happen. So these big superpowers can, um, fight out their, uh, issues on the world stage. Right. Well, I've got a question for everybody to get your opinion because I heard a comment or a suggestion the other day from someone who was speaking about people not taking seriously, I guess, like the tearing up of the START Treaty and, and a potential arms race. The thought was that, you know, the US and I think it was mainly from the US point of view, he was saying that the US needs to start doing above ground like nuclear testing again to because at the moment he's like people don't understand i guess the destructive power they don't un, like they don't have like the the worry that perhaps should be warranted and my thought is is that if the u.s was the start you know seeing if people would wake up and take this seriously if they set off you know a castle bravo somewhere where people could see it and it would trend online and all that sort of stuff. Do you think it would have the reaction of, okay, this is really serious, nuclear war scary, and all that sort of stuff? Or do you think it would just be, yeah, blow up another one, blow up another one? <laughs> what do you think, Luke? I think that, you know, as far as that's been said, I think, you know, with... The way things are going now, just about everyone knows that, you know, nuclear weapons are a very scary thing. And, you know, as far as them testing, it's a lot of money. And, you know, like you said, people like watching things explode. Yeah, I'm very much in the camp that as far as where social media goes and all that sort of thing, I don't think it's going to scare anyone. Everyone already knows, like, the sort of the capabilities they have. I don't think it's going to scare anyone. I just think that. You know, people are going to find it interesting to watch. Yeah, Tom, what do you think? Do you think it would be worthwhile PR to try to put people, go back to the Kennedy days and put people on notice? Or do you think it would just be, maybe it wouldn't even trend, <laughs> to be honest? <laughs> what do you reckon? Yeah, well, what is 30 years on since the end of the Cold War? And I think people have had enough time to look back. And at the fact that, you know, there was all that tension around people using nuclear weapons and that there's still the danger of it. But the fact that none actually got used in an offensive uh, in an offensive way and where we didn't end up in a sort of fallout, I think everyone's sort of calling the bluff that no one will use nuclear weapons and that's sort of out of out of the window. Yeah, that's that's the scary part for me that 
if when we get into the mindset of everybody's bluffing, you just know what's going to happen next is that yet yeah, if everyone's on one side of the boat, then the thing can potentially tip over. Mark, what do you think about the situation? Do you agree that above ground testing would be beneficial for public awareness or do you think that it would come second to the Kardashians? Um, well, I definitely think that such a rare event like that would get trending, but I don't think the the risk would outweigh the reward in that sense because um, although you're teaching a bit of awareness, you also have a bit of a cultural change that oh, like you like things to blow up and oh, that looks cool and there's a, I reckon, a fair bit of uh, machoism in the world nowadays, uh, wanting war, and it's kind of getting back to the uh, World War One and Two days about trying to fight it out. But I don't think it it would be a wise idea because you just um, also have the the risk of um, scaring uh, other countries, other nuclear nations as well, and they they might want to ramp up, and then you're just stuck in a um, another arms race and so um i reckon it would be highly unwise to do this and um, yeah just not a good idea yep no that sounds pretty sensible to me so our last topic that we should probably save some time for is bringing it into our backyard which is going to be talking about the AUKUS deal so mark i'm going to get you to keep talking can you for the listener who might not have any idea as to what AUKUS is or what has happened recently with certain deals or whatever, can you just give a basic overview for us? Uh, yep. So um, Australia, we already operate subs, but they're uh, powered by diesels and they're getting quite old. So Australia's looking to uh, get some new subs. And so uh, they go through a process and they decide, oh, the French... French subs would be nice and they have to retrofit the the French nuclear subs to be uh, diesel powered and then it's going uh, over time and over budget and you get um, Scott Morrison wanting nuclear submarines because uh, that's the future and you don't want to leave Australia napping and he tears the contract up, um, forms an alliance with the United States and the United Kingdom um, and this this was the end of 2021, and so there's been a fair bit of um, uh, political stuff going on. Is Australia going to get um, United States submarines, or are they going to get uh, United Kingdom submarines? And then they've been finding out, oh, what's the best thing to do? Would it be better to have nuclear subs early, or would it be better to make your own subs in uh, for the three different countries? And so what they've ended up deciding on is that they're going to um, do quite a large investment. I think it was 360 or $70 billion. Uh, that's not in one year. That's spread over up to like 2050 or so. But that, in essence, is going to give us um, nuclear subs by the start of 2030. They're going to be older uh, United States subs. Um, but it's also going to be investing a lot into our uh, industrial capability. So we'll be able to uh, manufacture uh, nuclear subs. They won't have any nuclear weapons on them. They'll be uh, conventionally armed, but they're just going to be nuclear powered. And that is uh, quite a large benefit for Australia, being able to um, have a sub that doesn't have to come up to air every uh, couple of days to charge the batteries again. Um, but it's also meaning that Australia is going to be uh, investing money in the United Kingdom so they can build more subs, investing money in the United States so they can build more subs. And so you've got a potential that um, all these subs are going to be built and maybe China's going to also think, oh, shit, I've got my pants pulled down. I'm going to have to um, start building some more subs as well. But it's also going to be upgrading the, um, the submarine base in Perth as well so they can handle nuclear submarines. You're also going to be having... Uh, US and UK nuclear subs coming around Australia more often so um, it will make it a bit of a threat I guess you could say but it's um, also going to be mean that there's more security for Australia 
Mark, I just have to say that that is the best level-headed rundown I've heard about Orcus. <laughs> Every other article or report I've heard on it is just like tried to throw some sort of bias of like they want you to think it's bad or they want you to think it's good. Yeah. Just from if no one had ever heard of that before, I think you just gave us the straight facts. So that was really good. Thank but you. now let's now let's get into what everybody else is harping on about and complaining about. What are some of the criticisms we're getting in regards to the Orcus deal? Uh, I'd definitely say that um, the big one would be infuriating uh, China, and then another one would also be. Uh, nuclear proliferation, um, which I see that second one more as just a, um, well, just a scare campaign because these submarines, although they're going to be uh, nuclear powered, they won't have nuclear weapons on board. And so you can see China try to fight fight this argument because they they know that this is going to be uh, such a large threat, and um, that also has the potential to um, get them into a bit of a submarine race to, to build more. And then is it really making the world safer or uh, more dangerous um, with more submarines in it? But yeah, back to like the nuclear proliferation, it's just more of a, um, yeah, just punching into the air kind of argument. Um, nothing's really happening because we aren't going to be um, obtaining nuclear weapons. And in the AUKUS agreement, there's going to be no chance that we can, um, say, enrich this uh, nuclear material and turn it into nuclear weapons. And there's going to be a lot of safeguards in place so that we can't obtain that and also like put the world at threat that there's more nuclear weapons in the world. Yeah, and that's obviously a couple of the things that if you don't, if you don't stop and actually think about it for a while, that. Some people have said, well, yeah, they're only nuclear powered at the moment, but you can just chuck nuclear weapons into it. And what's the stop people from doing that? It's probably a lot more <laughs> like the, the, the whole nuclear enrichment program or industry or economy, as I understand it, is perhaps the most highly regulated and scrutinized like production line in the entire world that just saying, Oh, we'll just chuck a couple of nukes. <laughs> yeah, is probably the is probably a highly ridiculous statement. Um, yeah, it's definitely not going to fly under the radar. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's going to be bells and whistles going off everywhere. Um, Luke, what do you reckon about this sub deal? I think it's, um, you know, as Mark was saying, the criticisms are all very uh, negligible, and I think as far as Australian economy and stuff, I mean, more jobs and that. It is nice to see some, a bit of industrialization. And then as far as, you know, the subs themselves, like, I think that if we are working towards this more and, you know, Australia, UK, US, working towards nuclear powered subs, you know, it's a, um, it's a very good thing because nuclear power I think is going to be one of the ways to go in the future and so it's advancements there and that sort of thing would be very interesting to watch and yeah as Mark said like I don't really see a huge downside anywhere and Tom what what are your thoughts and feelings around this deal and I guess the bigger picture of like the creating jobs and all that sort of stuff yeah, see, I, th I think it's definitely the way to go. Um, as as someone who's really into physics and engineering, I've always sort of been of the opinion that uh, nuclear power, as as a as a way of generating electricity, and you know, running submarines, is definitely the way forward in terms of being clean, being reliable, and all of these things. And I've always been disappointed with the fact that um, we in Australia don't have any more nuclear reactors other than the single medical one in Sydney. Um, and so I think that moving towards these nuclear subs is, you know, it'll have its um, effects on, you know, China might build up their military capability more. 
um, and that sort of thing. But it'll definitely build more jobs, and I think it'll definitely make um, these submarines a lot more viable long term into the future, which I think has been a major um, downside of Australia's military over the years is buying uh, assets which uh, depreciate and go out of go out of date and have a lot of long term uh, maintenance requirements and uh, development requirements, uh, whereas these nuclear submarines should uh, be viable for a very long time, uh, work for a very long time. Uh, uranium, or um, for running them, is, you know, we can mine uranium here. There's very, uh, like, a lot less reliance on foreign oil and foreign diesel um, to run them, um, as well as being, like... Um, uh, uh, Mark and I were talking to an ex-military um, man, and he said that um, these sub, these nuclear submarines would run rings around any diesel sub. Like you, you wouldn't want to be in a diesel sub facing a nuclear sub. So it's definitely beneficial for Australia. And as far as China uh, building up to try and uh, counter uh, the these submarines, I think it's definitely. A, a, a better war to to have um, military build up and an arms race and not have to use those arms for as long as everyone sort of builds up together and is sort of building up the counter and it doesn't end up needing to use any of these weapons it's it's fine yeah and I think from like a capabilities sort of comparison point of view i'm not quite sure about the subs i'm probably gonna have to google it but from my understanding the chinese don't even have like nuclear aircraft carriers they're still running diesel just basically on their whole fleet so that us stepping into this ring is a quite like some people say well what's the difference eight subs going to make but yeah as that whole bigger picture developing our own uranium developing our own capabilities so we're not just relying on buying secondhand stuff all the time is kind of in a way giving ourselves our own like sovereignty independence and that was like a question that one of my friends had the other day he was messaging me and he was like oh what's your beat on this 360 billion dollars they should be spending it on some other stuff and blah 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 do you think this is a ripoff and my thoughts was, and I did put a meme up on our Instagram page, which was, I think that this was going to be a deal that was going to happen whether we liked it or not. That it is, <laughs> it has to do with a lot of interoperability that Australia's defensive plan since the end of the Second World War has been solely, or even during, has been primarily relied upon the fact that the americans can step in and use our gear and everything works the same and the, the same for the british and the same for us if we go over there we train on their stuff and then we can use their stuff as well so perhaps maybe this has just been another deal from washington and given to us and it does have a lot of positives for us that we're not going to throw our hands up in the air and say you know we don't want to do it yeah, I'd definitely say that that uh, interoperability is like probably one of the greatest greatest assets that's coming along with this these new subs as well because um, just being able to um, dock into say the UK or the US or anywhere um, definitely makes it uh, a lot easier for like Australia and uh, US and UK to um, kind of move around the world and also um, kind of enforce the freedom of the seas a bit. Um, and it's also good because uh, we can also share a lot of the education. Like you got a lot more um, brains working together on the same thing and um, you don't have that bit of pointless exercise of three different um, nations all working for the, same, for the same goal, but separately you can all have them working together and um, kind of making it a, um, a better outcome as well. And also helping um, like Australian Australian um, Navy members train up on the US and UK subs 
Um, you also get a bit more experience in um, uh, working an asset that can better defend um, our nation. Um, we're getting close to the hour mark. Is there any other final thoughts that we would like to have on the AUKUS deal before we have to maybe wrap up for today? Luke, have you got any final thoughts or comments on the AUKUS deal or anything that we've talked about today? Um, yeah, I'd actually, when we're talking about, as Tom was saying about, you know, we have uranium and we don't have any nuclear reactors and, you know, it's going to be the way to go in the future. I think it's actually quite a good thing that, you know, we're going to be starting to build our own stuff as far as you were saying with independence and that sort of thing because as far as raw materials go, like we have just about everything and we've always been outsourcing a lot of it. So it's just, I think in the future, it'll be the way to go for Australia to start moving towards, you know, working with the world more, but also I think it's a good thing that they're bringing it in so we can start using our resources to, you know, build things for ourselves and to get that bit more independence. Yeah, absolutely. And if we're serious about any of this green energy sort of stuff, we kind of have to take nuclear a little bit more seriously. But anyway, that's a whole other podcast topic. Um, Tom, do you have anything you want to add, final thoughts? Yeah, just along the lines of what Luke said. Um, and in terms of if we are sort of going for this deal with the US and sort of um, making an enemy out of China a little bit more by building up our military capabilities, I think it's always a good thing to be developing our own domestic manufacturing and industry um, to try and move away from an al a reliance on China, um, especially with the tensions that we have and the fact that this deal was probably coming whether we liked it or not so i think it's always a good thing to have more domestic uh manufacturing and industry yeah absolutely and mark anything else you would like to add before we go uh yeah i'd just like to say that it's um good that we're not like being stuck in the past a bit and uh looking more towards the future um having this sort of capability and also as uh, tom and luke were saying just the uh, increasing public perception for nuclear it doesn't just have a uh, this deal doesn't just have a impact on defense it also will have more of a uh, domestic impact as well and um definitely will i believe will make the the world and australia a bit safer rightio we'll leave it there so thanks boys for coming together for this bit of a catch-up hopefully the audio is not too bad you can blame that on tom and mark they're sharing a 5g hotspot in in gloucester um <laughs> but um hopefully it's good hopefully you've enjoyed this conversation and we'll see you again next time on the modern history hsc podcast <laughs>